I want to believe we watched Fire in the Sky, which means it's time for another Portland at the Movies. In a world, in a time, in a land of eternal beauty, all that stands between a city and a disaster. In a city where anything can happen. If you thought you had seen it all. Let's get going. You gotta go to work. And, and what? I'd like to get the hell out of here before they come back. Oh, they won't be back. I don't think they like me. Welcome to another episode of Portland at the Movies. My name is Todd Workoven, and I'm joined, as always, by Brian Kidd, the Unipiper. How are you, Brian? Hey, Todd. Doing okay. Good, good. good. And of course, uh, yes. Uh, and of course, Mark Middleton. How are you, Mark? I'm very well. I'm super excited about this. Good, good. Yes, me too. As much as I miss doing those uh, drop-ins during the opening, the opening music, it's fun to be on the receiving end of the surprise. So <laughs> I, I appreciate that. That had the Family Guy effect of like I wasn't into it until you held on it way too long for their awkward <laughs> laughing at the end. So that was pretty great. <laughs> well, we uh, go ahead. It's okay. You can just talk over me the whole show. <laughs> <laughs> the huge. Uh, I, I was gonna say that uh, it's, it's a little too soon for the uh, intro where they're like in a city that stands between disaster. It's like, ooh. <laughs> I know. Last week when um uh, we're recording here in Portland, Oregon, of course, and last week we were having a little fire crisis down. Um, I live down in Aurora, so I was in one of the evacuation zones, and then I realized that. Oh, next week we have to talk about fire in the sky, which I was like, oh, maybe maybe too soon. Um, but thankfully, as we were discussing before we started recording, it has rained and the skies are, are clear again and, um, and we're doing okay. So we are here to discuss the 1993 movie Fire in the Sky. Now, uh, Mark, you had never seen this before, correct? Correct. I had not. Yeah. And... I had not seen it either, but Brian, you had. So talk about your your history with Fire in the Sky, if you have one. I loved, loved this movie uh, growing up. Um, it came out right at a time when I was big into aliens and ghosts and unsolved mysteries. And it, you know, the, the ending, you know, the last half hour of this movie just kind of comes out of nowhere. And it profoundly affected me as a child. And I was just entranced. And, and you know, I, I loved everything like this going forward um and uh so it i had not revisited it in many many years um so it was good to see it um and uh with a, a fresh perspective and i felt in many ways it, it held up i was gonna ask yeah so looking uh, revisiting it do you you do you still feel the same way about it um there are uh <laughs> <laughs> yes, I think overall um, it was a still a fun watch um, as long as you don't go into it expecting a full-on documentary. <laughs> yes. Well, I had also never seen this, but I was very, very aware of this movie. Um, 
because uh, it came out in 1993, uh, which I'm going to talk a little bit more on this in a, in a second. But in 1993, I was very much uh, getting into comic book collecting and, you know, going every week or every month to my local comic book store, which at that time was run by these, um, which seemed like they were elderly ladies, but they were probably in their 40s and 50s. But they reminded me of Patty and Selma from The Simpsons because they were just these really weathered chain smokers and this was like the end of the 80s early 90s and you could still smoke indoors at stores and so they were just constantly chain smoking and just the greatest little old ladies but fire in the sky did a ton of comic book ads so i have so many i'm holding up a copy uh, from from the from the inside cover of Batman Legends of the Dark Knight, uh, issue number 43 from March 93. So I just remember seeing the poster for this everywhere, which is a super cool poster. And it just, I think, I think maybe when people think in general of alien abductions or whatever, I would almost think that they probably picture this because it was just kind of so ingrained in the culture, whether or not people actually saw the movie. Yeah, this was the one that really, I think, sp- Bird, uh, that renaissance of aliens and you know from here the x-files and everything i was gonna say else. do you know when the x-files came when that started i think it might have been 93 or 94 okay okay because the only other um when i think of kind of mass mass appeal or, or mass well-known alien abduction story it's this one and the book communion by this guy mm-hmm. named whitney Stryber. Uh, which they did make. I haven't seen that movie either, but that movie came out in like 1986, I think. Um, but I think between Communion and Fire in the Sky, I think nationally or, or culturally, we now think of that alien gray with the big eyes. And I think that's kind of where this or that started was with those these two movies. Yeah. So X Files started also in '93. Oh, interesting. Yep. So yeah, this this came out uh, on March 12. 1993 and it's kind of interesting but because I, I like I said I had not seen this movie until until now and I was shocked at how great it was I really really liked this movie I mean it's not the greatest thing ever but it wasn't like I knew it kind of was a flop at the time and I'm wondering if that's because Jurassic Park also came out um, probably a couple months later because this was in March but I think 1993 was a pretty big year as far as movies that I think this maybe just got kind of lost in that churn of, of big box office movies like that. Um, but I was really surprised, and we'll get into it a little bit later, especially uh, some of the alien scenes, like how great they were. Yeah, but I not th- only think this movie may have had a marketing problem where it didn't know how to market itself other than using that cool image. Um, yeah, I mean, okay. if I would have seen that, what they do in that, like, the when they flash back or whatever, and they've got all the little apparatuses and, like, thing, like, that imagery is amazing, and I am just shocked that I've never seen that before. Yeah, I think they were, uh, probably they didn't want to give people a false impression of what the entirety of the movie was going to be about if they had used more, leaned more into that in the marketing. Um but they may have shot themselves that totally in the foot. makes sense 
Yeah, totally. Uh, before we get into it, I mentioned 1993, not only a busy year for Hollywood, but a busy year for Portland and Hollywood. Uh-huh. So here's just some of the movies uh, filmed in Portland that came out in 1993. There's Homeward Bound, Guns on the Clackamas, Free Willy, Body of Evidence, The River Wild, Brain Smasher, A Love Story, Even Cowgirls Get the Blues, Hear No Evil, The Temp, uh, and even a couple more out of that. Jeez. So, yeah, I think that might have been like be the big year for Portland at the movies is 1993. <laughs> well, sadly, Fire in the Sky, I don't think was filmed at all in Portland. No, 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 it wasn't. I guess Oregon in general. Um, but another another thing I did notice about this movie going in was the name of the cinematographer, cinnamon, the cinematographer, <laughs> the cinematographer uh, whose name is Bill Pope. And I was like, why? That name sounds familiar, but I don't like recall enough cinematographers to know who that was so i looked him up and here's a short list of the uh movies that bill pope uh was uh shot so he did uh, some music videos a lot of chris isaac videos metallica's one video which was their first video that really kind of blew metallica up dark man army of darkness bound clueless all three of the matrix all three of the Tobey Maguire Spider-Mans, Team America, Scott Pilgrim, and an episode of Freaks and Geeks. Um, <laughs> and just like all of it, between him and like uh, Robert Patrick, who uh, from Terminator 2 is in this, they have the... Oh, and X-Files, that's right. They both have the longest IMDb uh, credits page. Robert Patrick, man, he has been just working in, <laughs> in everything, everything forever. Yeah. Um, so Brian mentioned this was not meant. This was not filmed in Portland. It was filmed uh, in Oakland, which is a uh, Oakland and um, Sutherland, not as Sutherland and uh, Ashland, Roseburg. right? Roseburg, oh, oh, Roseburg, yeah. Southside Roseburg. Yep. So, which is a little a little far from Portland, but um, it it is a stand, and it doesn't take place in Portland. It is a stand-in for the Northern Arizona forest. Which I guess they have. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, a big. Uh, it's the largest ponderosa forest in the world, uh, and and so this crew were they were doing forest maintenance, and uh, they were contracted by the government to thin the forest, and so they were, uh, you know, making making them safer for uh, preventing fires. <laughs> Too soon. Too soon. <laughs> Yeah, so I was unfamiliar with the idea of freelance loggers. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that, that's kind of what they were. Uh, and raking the forest floor. Private loggers. And raking the... <laughs> uh, but we did mention D.B. Sweeney uh, is in... D. Oh, maybe we haven't mentioned that on there, but uh, D.B. Sweeney is also in that movie, who also appeared in 1993's Hear No Evil, filmed in Portland. So, <laughs> oh, yes. Brian, you did not see that movie because uh, our friend Brian Turner... Uh, filled in for you or was it mark that you no it was brian that you filled in for uh, for that yeah but a big year for db sweeney and movies filmed in portland um but this it's the story of a group of uh seven freelance loggers who are working in the northern arizona uh ponderosa pine forest uh and they are all driving home from work one day in the forest when they see this mysterious light out in the distance they get closer to it they can't figure out what it 
is. And so D.B. Sweeney gets out of the truck that they're in to uh, explore further. Uh, D.B. Sweeney gets hit by the big bolt of light that you see on the cover of the uh, of the box. And it knocks him back. The rest of the guys in the truck flee kind of because they're all freaked out. Uh, then they come back after a little bit after they think they're safe. And D.B. Sweeney is missing. And so the first half of this movie is kind of about how the town, the small town of Snowflake, uh, deals with this group of men who are claiming an alien abduction when another one of their friends goes missing. So that kind of lays the groundwork for this movie. Yeah, and it is based on a, a true story, and there are quite a quite a bit of documentation around this because uh of the sensationalism of the of the situation and so there there's a documentary called travis that's also on um uh amazon uh prime uh, videos and so you can you can watch that alongside this movie and um pretty much the story that is laid out in the movie is their telling of the uh of the of their recounting of the story i would say the only difference between what they said happened versus how the movie portrayed it was uh right after the incident and uh db sweeney disappears um or or they they drive away from db sweeney and uh mike the best friend uh says you guys can stay here or you can go with me and i'm gonna go back and get him uh in the movie they chose to stay back and he went alone in the real situation they all went together uh and i i felt that that was um it it was a point of contention in the movie because it it created friction between mike and the other guys uh that they weren't loyal enough or whatever and so i think it was trying to create a little bit more drama than what really happened and and so they they in real life they all went together and they they tried to rescue him but he wasn't there but everything else lays out exactly like the movie yeah i I watched um at least the first half of that documentary as well mark and i was really surprised i hadn't ever um, looked into the real case or heard from travis himself and I was surprised at how, what they were describing firsthand is pretty much exactly what is portrayed uh, in the film, um, except, of course, now, his uh, account of what happened aboard the spaceship, which uh, was completely okay. completely fabricated for the movie because they thought, the producers thought that the real story was too boring. <laughs> <laughs> That's good that you clarified that because I, I didn't watch that documentary, but there's a ton of uh, Travis Walton on YouTube either appearing on people's podcasts there's a bunch of footage of him like at what must be like a ufo con because he's in the unipiper knows it well he's in one of those tiny booths with the black curtains with a tiny little sign that's printed out that says who it is you know and he's signing his book or whatever and he says that same thing too how kind of everything aboard the ship right uh for the movie was made up which is interesting because I mean that was my that was my favorite part, but um, <laughs> but there are a ton. There's a ton of podcasts about this movie too that are on YouTube too because I just put in his name and fire in the sky and there's just a bunch. Of, and sometimes you can see uh, Travis Walton speaking for like an hour and a half at these conventions and all this stuff. So he's 
definitely documented uh, this well. I didn't see much from the other people involved, though, like his co-workers. Did you guys, was there any of that in that other documentary? In that other documentary, all all of the other five of the crew, uh, I, I maybe not all five, maybe four of them, uh, were all uh, part of the conversation, including the uh, person doing the polygraph test, the uh, the local deputy, the sheriff that was there. Like they they brought in everybody in this documentary. Oh, interesting. So, yeah, it's very thorough. I get this. That's one thing. Go ahead, Brian. I was gonna say I get the sense that uh, Travis Walton, you know, this is his full time thing now is living this up and playing this character, you know, and and uh, we probably should have reached out to him, you know, we probably could have gotten him on this show. <laughs> oh my gosh, why didn't I think that? Because yeah, he's all over YouTube and asking, you know, uh, do on other people's podcasts and stuff. It's also interesting to note this happened in 1975 is when this story happened. So it's not a contemporary story of 1993, but a uh, retelling of, of what happened in 1975. One of the things that Travis Walton himself uh, says in a couple other interviews is that over the years, uh, the movie shows them take a polygraph test at one point, uh, like all the entire crew. But since then, over the years, there have been 16 different polygraph tests administering to these people. And every single time, they've all passed and uh, the the chances of that happening if you know this story is not true or like with that many people over that many years over that many tests i found to be pretty compelling except for did you <laughs> did you find the one polygraph that uh travis failed oh no i didn't do tell uh this comes from the travis walton wikipedia page um, Walton appeared on the Fox game show The Moment of Truth and was asked if he, in fact, was abducted by a UFO, to which he replied yes. The polygraph test determined he was lying. Oh, no. Um, which, of course, led me to look into this TV show that I had never heard of. Um, I, I remember, remember that, that show. show. Oh, you do? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Wow. It was a big scandal because it was just so it was it's just so gross. Yes. <laughs> so, I was, I was you looking cheated into on it. your wife and yeah and you uh, yeah. They ask you twenty one questions on the game show, you know, in front of the cameras, in front of America, um, <laughs> to which you have already answered all of these questions in a lie detector, and then based on your answers, whether you give the same answer as you did um, to the lie detector, you would win prizes and the, the questions get more and more revealing and it just sounds absolutely insane. I, uh, yeah, totally. <laughs> but, um, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, DB Sweeney in this movie and, and Robert Patrick are the main care are DB Sweeney is the one who gets abducted. So he's playing Travis Walton. Uh, Robert Patrick is playing his best friend. Uh, what Mike, is that what we said? His Mike name was Rogers. Mr. Rogers. So I couldn't figure out uh, uh, Mike is married and has two little girls and his marriage is on the rocks and they kind of play into that. But D.B. Sweeney also has a girlfriend. He's, he's dating the bro the sister of Mike. Oh. Who, who, who lives with uh, Mike and his wife. Okay, because I kept thinking because at one point db sweeney sneaks up to his girlfriend's uh window like and she's a full-grown adult 
And like I couldn't figure. I'm like, well, maybe they're supposed to be in high school. But I couldn't figure out what age DB Sweeney was supposed to be at this point. I think they were purposefully but, trying to make him seem a little immature. The motorcycle stunt at the beginning. Yeah, and the fa- and when he snuck up there, I was like, well, is he trying to keep it a secret? And then I was like, well, that girl lives with Robert Patrick and his wife. Is that their daughter somehow? <laughs> and like, I was so confused as to the relationships uh, between all these people. But that makes much more sense. Um, and so DB DB Sweeney and and uh, Robert Patrick dream of opening someday opening up a motorcycle shop. And one of my favorite things ever was when. DB Sweeney shows shows Robert Patrick the pl- the plans for their dream motorcycle store, and it's just it's like a six year old drew this drawing like with goofy stick figures and like motorcycle store on it, and it was like it was so absurd. The MT motorcycle shop. MT Motors. Mike and Travis get it. Our, our, our prices Tra- are our prices oh, are go. so low. So our showroom is always it's empty. Always empty. <laughs> It's a pretty good idea if no one's run with it yet. Oh my gosh, that's hilarious. Uh, so we're also introduced to the the other other people in the freelance logging crew, um, including, uh, let's see, none uh, of them is super come into e. play. Mark, why don't you take that? And there's E.T., uh, the, the boy from E.T., Elliot. Yeah, Henry Thomas. Henry Thomas uh, is there. And so he was not old enough to be on the crew he was 17 years old at the time so he lied on his application to uh join the crew and he was definitely like the most freaked out and the most nervous and i and that and the movie portrayed that pretty well and then uh there was the uh guy that they referred to as the choir boy who is uh i don't remember anybody's character name but uh you know th- there was a, a couple other guys and then there was the bad boy and uh Dallas was his last name and so everybody called him Dallas and uh, he's got a, a history of crime and he is uh, definitely the the uh, person that everybody accuses of killing Travis when Travis is missing everybody's like well come on uh, he had a fight with Travis that day he's got a history of crime all the all these things and so uh, the townspeople were just like, well, clearly Dallas killed him, and uh, these other boys are just covering for him, and uh, just created that whole um, uh, narrative. And uh, yeah, he is shown. This Dallas character is shown. Um, uh, he has long hair and wears a bandana around his forehead. So that's one way you know he's he's <laughs> supposed to be bad. Boy. And he's also shown eating an apple. Uh, just using a knife to like slice the apple and then eat it right off the knife because whenever you see that in movies it's a signal for this dude is not to be trusted they're <laughs> eating it right off the blade of a knife or whatever um, but as far there was uh, two things in this movie that um, I, I couldn't figure out how they were they kind of forgot to pick up the threads of so after D.B. Sweeney gets abducted. They go back, you know, and form a search party the next day. And, you know, the whole town is looking for him out in the forest. And his friends see uh, a Native American in the background from the... And they say, oh, the well, the Apache reservation is 10 feet right from here there. or whatever. And, like, that guy's sneaking away. Right. And then we and never see never or hear anything about that again. 
I I guarantee that was a cut scene. Like there's there's got to be some more to that that just wasn't included in the movie because like maybe they thought the w- Native Americans had something to do with it, or or that maybe that guy saw it as well. Uh, oh. I was thinking of like a, a confirming witness or somebody who you know, it, and so there's definitely more to the story with that guy. I guarantee it because maybe they, he's the one who buried the dog. He could have he could have buried the dog, yeah. So as they're out doing the search party and and all the things, they've got the dogs, they've got helicopters, they've got a hundred men uh, in a line scouring the thing and 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 all that, and uh, and so yeah, it, it was they they came across what they thought was a buried body, and uh, everybody gathers and digs it up, and it turns out to be a dog that somebody buried years ago and that was it and james gardner was not happy to see that he was not (laughs) so james gardner plays a um a sheriff or some sort of investigator police investigator from montana that is called down to like look into this missing person slash possible murder case right and he's got a perfect record he's never lost a case all all these you know so he's the the guy that they're bringing in to solve the thing and they literally bring him in minutes after the initial <laughs> conversation with the with the they're still at the bar they still just like <laughs> made the phone are. call they're, it's it's literally less than an hour into this investigation and he's from montana <laughs> and they <laughs> drove him in from montana yeah, I did not understand it at all why they got him. And that's uh, who they're in him? Arizona. <laughs> they're in Arizona. <laughs> so like and far away from anything cuz this is like a super small town like in the so, middle of a forest. So like that's at least 6 hours from Phoenix, which is pretty far away from Montana. Right. <laughs> I, I didn't put that together. He is there so fast. <laughs> Uh, the other thing that never comes back in a way that I kind of wanted it to is that after DB uh, Sweeney goes missing, you know, the town is kind of descended upon by uh, news media outlets. We see people from Japan. We see people like we see headlines from the National Enquirer. So it's like this media frenzy. And we're introduced to kind of these paranormal investigator slash journalist types. Oh, that- the folks from afar. Is he, what what was going on with them? Because they uh, spoilers when DB Sweeney returns later, they like accost him in this bathroom, and then that's the last time we ever see them. Fifteen minutes again, like fifteen minutes after the initial discovery of him being returned, they are on the scene, and so like, uh, so uh, Travis, Travis was abducted. He got returned. He goes to a phone booth. He calls his best friend. His best friend is on the way, and and he must have hung up with Travis, picked up the phone uh, because he did have the card of their name, uh, and so That's he's right. like, "I, they should be there too, I guess." And <laughs> we know nothing about what's happening. Right, this could be dangerous. We don't and know it's, who the, what it's going to be. So and we might it's as in well the call these strangers. It's, it's like ten o'clock at night. You know, it's it's not. Yeah, uh, yeah. Th- I felt that was really weird. <laughs> yeah, I do. But yeah, I was just. I do love that Hollywood gave them a better name than their actual name. 
Um, the organization that he represents in the movie was uh, AFAR, which is a pretty good acronym for, for UFO research. It's like American Foundation for Aerial Research, I think. Uh, but yeah. their, their real name is APRO, A-P-R-O. That's oh. not, not at all. <laughs> that's, that's, that's terrible. I wonder if they change their name after this. They're like, oh, well, that's a great name. Yeah, why do we think of that? <laughs> then it's copyrighted <laughs> by, the, by the theater. <laughs> Uh, so yeah so D.B. Sweeney goes missing the whole town is trying to figure out what's going on the men decide you know they have to tell the truth about what happened which is this alien abduction story about so they see uh, D.B. Sweeney get this beam of light that kind of picks him up in the air and then throws him about 20 feet or so and so they freak out drive away minutes later they return and D.B. Sweeney is missing and that's kind of like where they go back to town and are trying to explain this all and and um, one of the things I – this movie is not great, and when I was watching it uh, again, I watched it this morning, and I was trying to figure out, like, there's a lot of things I really love about it. Like, it looks great, and I think the acting is great. The, all the actors yep. did a great job, and I was trying to figure out, like, well, why isn't this as compelling and as good as it should be with all these individual pieces? And I, I'm wondering if part of it is that – it's there's too little happening for it to be like a character study like we're not with the characters long enough because we keep going back to the event but we're not with the event long enough for it to be like an action sci-fi movie so it felt like a little anemic on both sides of them and i'm wondering that's if that's why it didn't add up what do you guys think that makes a lot of sense uh and i i agree with you like there's not a big arc of you know there's there's some character movement in mike as uh as his life is kind of uprooted by this and and then he like moves out of town and isolates himself and and everything there's but there's not like here's uh act one act two act three and the character arcs that people go through and and all of the story development and and everything and i i feel like they missed an opportunity to explore more about uh the real situation in real life each of those six guys their lives were upended and fairly destroyed by the uh by the media and the constant pressure that they were lying and not telling the truth and and they like had to move out of town and relocate and change their name and like there there was a lot of upheaval in these lives that was was brushed upon but uh i i felt like they could have gone further with that or or something to to build a little more drama Ryan, what do you think? I think Todd nailed it. The movie didn't know what it was trying to be exactly um, because the the overall plot is very thin. You know, guy goes missing, then he shows up, and you know that's practically all the movie d- decides to cover. And then you're also trying to juggle um, f- six characters, and yeah, that's tough. And l- like you said, it. it uh, fails in a character study uh, because we don't get to see enough uh, art with any of them um, and then it obviously fails as a um, you know a plot driven action piece 
Um, and so I think for most folks who saw the movie, uh, they came away thinking, A, it was boring, and B, I wanted more of the alien scenes. Um, so to, to, you really have to just sort of appreciate the movie for what it is. And that's why I was kind of glad, because mm. I did not know really anything about this story going in, so knowing nothing was kind of fun because I didn't know mm. if he was coming back and I didn't know if it was all going to be just the drama of after he, <clears throat> so it was, it was really, it was really fun to, to watch kind of not knowing the story. Um, but right before, before we get to kind of to where he gets returned after five days, the town is trying to figure out what's going on and they don't trust this Dallas character, the apple eater. And Dallas has this cut on his hand that everybody's like, what, where did that, what, what ha- where did I, that come from? I, I did not catch that if they said it. Yeah, uh, they, he had a cut on his hand. I, they were pointing at, like, you have this cut on your hand because you chopped up your, your colleague and, and brutally murdered him and got rid of him, and this is the evidence. Right. But, um, but they, they just said, yeah, he got, he got cut. Like, they didn't, go there wasn't a scene where they uh saw it happen or anything so i think they were insinuating that uh his cut was related to some other illegal activity and that was part of the reason that he didn't uh want to do the Mm. polygraph at first because they said something about like we know where you really got that cut from right at first i thought he was going to be part because at one point um they they're trying to convince Dallas. The rest of the crew is trying to convince Dallas to take the polygraph test that was offered so that they can get their names cleared. And, and Dallas kind of disappears for a while and they go and kind of find him in the kind of the outskirts of the middle of nowhere. And I'm like, Oh, maybe this is the na- This is the uh, Apache reservation, but it turns out that everybody was speaking Spanish. So that must, he must've not also been part of that, of that thing, but they finally convinced Dallas to come take the polygraph and uh everybody takes it but uh dallas has come back as inconclusive and in in the movie it's kind of a throwaway line of like it's all over the board there's no way you can read this um but everybody else apparently passed that one but his was inconclusive and that kind of but they didn't really dive into like if that caused a scandal or if like that caused anything to change because the next day they all passed uh in real life (laughs) And so, okay. so they they were trying to stir up some more drama with that. Right. You know, but. it's telling that that the thing that Travis Walton <clears throat> always says in these interviews is that how much was changed aboard the ship because it just wasn't very exciting. And I feel like I feel like the rest of the movie plays out like that. But Mark, from what you're telling me, the the actual story is like super compelling. And so it's uh, it's so disappointing that that wasn't translated. Yeah, uh, the the story of the of the, the real life guys. story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I I felt it was, and I and I haven't read the book, but I imagine that it goes into a lot more detail in the book. Um, <clears throat> and yeah, and I hadn't heard about the differences in the uh, scenes on board the ship. Uh, in the documentary, they do kind of do a reenactment of it, and it is. Uh, pretty mundane but uh yeah (laughs) definitely not needles into your eyes kind of uh uh, intensity uh so yeah 
let's get let's get it's, it's not chronologically like this in the movie but let's talk about kind of on board the ufo now i found everything like even the outside in the beginning where we see the whole crew looking up and db sweeney gets out of the truck and looks at the ufo itself i thought was super cool because it's very it was very organic in a way that i hadn't seen a lot of representations but um so that was neat and then all of the stuff on board of the ufo like i said at the beginning was just and industrial light magic did all of the um creature work and the special effects of this is i don't think there's any computer animation this i mean it's 1993 so jurassic park was taking all of the computer animators anyway um but all of that stuff was amazing. What struck me the most, especially after finding, uh, after looking up Bill Pope, the cinematographer, uh, how he did The Matrix, this oh. was exactly like The Matrix. Yeah, totally. He wakes up inside this cocoon that's this weird membrane that he breaks out of, and he looks out of it. He's in that round column-type room with all other rooms that looked exactly the same oh, and funny. i w it was so amazing to me to see how similar that was to what the matrix eventually becomes yeah that's i had that exact same thought so that was yeah that was all super cool and like so he he gets abducted into and finds himself in that goo or whatever breaks out of his little cocoon kind of floats around this chamber and eventually sees what kind of looks like a operating room theater type thing with all these little aliens uh, gathered around it. Uh, he tries to scramble away or whatever, and he gets caught. They put him on oh, this table. You forgot the um, the uh, space suits. Space, space suit. Yeah. So the, the classic gray uh, uh, design of the smooth metallic head with the big eyes. Oh, right. Is actually a space suit that is worn on top of the creatures that just look like humans without hair that are really old and big with no noses. Uh, You're so, right. I totally forgot about that. That was yeah. super cool too. And I, I yeah. liked that touch of like, these things are going to need something to go outside. Like they're not right. magic and just can, they're not tardigrades. They can't, they can't survive <laughs> everything. <laughs> I tickled myself with that tardigrade joke. There. <laughs> it's good. Good one. Um, but he gets put down on this slab of a table and and everything from here on out, like I said, I didn't know what the story was. And so this part, and again, I cannot believe this imagery isn't more well known because they put him down on this table and kind of put this latex blanket Cloth, yeah. over him. And then that, and then they put one over his face, and it kind of gets vacuum formed down onto him to keep him down. And then they take a little blade and they cut um, by his eye, and so there's a the membrane thing kind of opens around his eye and his mouth. Clockwork orange style. Totally. They had the thing to prop open his eye, and then they put a bunch of like milky fluid. Uh, it's on the screen right now. Like, I mean, that is horrifying, and that is so cool. And there's like milky stuff that gets in the eye and they shove a bunch of crap down his throat and, and it is just oh, so the cool. The probe comes down from the ceiling and extends a needle and they show that going towards his eye and, and everything and then uh, and then he wakes up. And uh, then he wakes uh, up. Yeah. 
what I did think was funny about that latex blanket that they put on him when they when we see kind of a full body shot, they've put extra blankets around his genitals because <laughs> apparently aliens know the concept that these humans will be a little bit ashamed of just that area if they are ever seen without anything covering it. I thought that was funny. <laughs> but the design of the actual aliens too were were really neat. They weren't like exaggerated, you know, with the giant eyes. They looked like they look like little you know old how they men. <laughs> yeah little old men or like you used to make those um dehydrated apple faces that like grandmas <laughs> would used to have on their, on their freezer on the fridge yep <laughs> softened up pantyhose that's what it reminded me of that but yeah that was that was just really really cool so he comes back and then um then the story shifts to being like what his experience he's kind of having ptsd about it and we're seeing some flashbacks and stuff like that so it sort of becomes that story and then it just kind of flickers out at the end how does this end i don't even remember now i've watched it twice um well well um so what we see in the movie is what happens like two and a half years later and so they kind of jump forward and now uh Mike has is not part of the picture, uh, but we see Travis with children, and the girlfriend is now a wife, and she's pregnant, and uh, and all the things, and he's headed to work, and he sees a billboard with an, a, a a motorcycle that reminds him of a conversation with, with a child's Mike. drawing of a motorcycle. <laughs> <laughs> Which uh, reminds him of the conversation he and Mike were having about, uh, you know, we're going to go on a big trip, on on a big motorcycle trip. And uh, he turns around and goes to find Mike and, and, wow, it's been two and a half years. I heard that you lived up here in the woods and and everything. Uh, Get in the car. Let's let's go. And so they together go visit the original location of the abduction and kind of have this moment of clarity and restoration and I'm sorry and uh, you know clearing the air and like this has changed both of our lives but you know uh, let's move forward from here and and um, and and so they reconcile and uh, roll the credits I I appreciate your <laughs> your interpretation of that scene because it's a lot more emotionally fulfilling than what actually happens at the end now that I remember is that and it's such like it's such a ma- a male thing to do so here's what they he goes to he he finds Mike in the cabin or whatever and says you know maybe let's be friends again and and come take a drive with me and they drive for what must be hours back out to the site of the incident they get out of the car and speak like three sentences to each other like I never should have left you here don't worry I don't blame you and then they get in the car and they're done and like that's the emotional restoration we get from these two these two males that don't know spend hours in a car together not talking to say three sentences when you get there and then immediately go home you know it should have ended it should have ended you know flash forward 20 years 
and then all of a sudden Travis is uh, talking to uh, some movie producers and they're like we want to make a movie of your story <laughs> fast forward to Travis Walton at a sad UFO con in like Sandusky Ohio <laughs> answering questions for someone's podcast uh, he apparently was in this movie I saw him in the credit at the end but I didn't remember he was some townsperson or something like that so he Oh, nice. Yeah, he makes an appearance. and his wife, I think, were townsfolks in the town hall scene. Oh, okay. There was a there was an old lady in that town hall. At, at one point before D.B. Sweeney comes back, the town gathers together, you know, in the local church to talk to the sheriff about what he's going to do about, uh, is he going to press charges or anything? And Mike uh, walks in halfway through, you know, and everybody turns around and and looks at Mike and Mike says, you know, if anybody's got anything to say to me, say it now. And there's a shot of this little old lady at the end who just like throws so much shade at Mike before just like turning away from him. And it's like two seconds of this glorious performance by this old lady extra. (laughs) 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 Um, Anyway. Oh yeah. So there's we're watching a little clip here of, of him walking I'm, in. Yeah, I'm looking for it's right to, it's, yeah, it's right at the end where he makes his little speech and, and walks away. At the end, while you're trying to find that though, uh uh speaking of James oh, Garner, so not oh there she is. Yeah, oh I just saw Travis too. Oh, did you? Tra- I think that's him and his wife right there. Oh, funny, oh, yeah, he's got the little yeah, mustache. Sure enough. He looks yep. so young. Um but uh, just going back to James Gardner, who who shows up out of the blue immediately after events happen, he also disappears from the movie just as quickly because D.B. Sweetie comes back from being an alien and James Gardner's like, all right, I'm out. And just like goes <laughs> away. Me, me, me. <laughs> so I wasn't quite sure how that was resolved. It, that was weird. And he, uh, he told the uh, the local sheriff, like, you're you're gonna find out that they're covering them uh that this is all a hoax they're covering for themselves and as soon as it comes out i'll be back here and uh and the 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 sheriff said the same thing that we all thought he's like from montana (laughs) (laughs) and he's like yeah uh that is so funny now thinking back that (laughs) Literally, so yeah, at the beginning, when their friend gets abducted and then disappears, they drive immediately to the bar in town to talk to the sheriff about it. And James Garner is there like that same yeah. night. He, he had his bag packed, he was, you know, just waiting he was for the ready. call. Maybe he's the only like UFO <laughs> investigator in the FBI or whatever. Wait, did we find out where he was from? Was he from an agency? They, they. They really didn't talk about it, and they wouldn't tell him what it was about. They're like, "You'll just need to hear it from the horse's mouth." And he's like, "Show well, me the horse! Show me the horse! Come on! <laughs> like, what is this about? Like, literally." That's right. I guess on. if he does, <laughs> he doesn't know why he's there. He is summoned in the middle of the night from Montana to go to Snowflake, Arizona, which conservatively has to be a twelve-hour journey. Without knowing anything about why he's there. (laughs) 
Oh my gosh, that's so funny. <laughs> so is there anything else? The thing that is is I keep returning to so compelling about this movie and why maybe I'm so disappointed that the movie isn't more compelling is that I am not like I'm I'm not a huge sci-fi fan. I'm not like an an alien enthusiast anyway. I did enjoy when Brian, you and I got to go to the UFO festival in um, McMinnville, Oregon, which was amazing. Although it got rained out, uh, which was disappointing. But I'm not like a huge I want to believe, you know, X. I didn't watch the X Files for the most part, like those kind of things. But I did find it compelling that there does seem to be corroborating evidence of all of these lie detector tests. There doesn't seem to be any sort of other motive about it. It's not like the other six are making it, you know, making a living on the UFO circuit. It doesn't appear to be that Travis Walton is hugely successful. I mean, you know, he probably pays the bills with it, but it's not like, so I couldn't figure out an ulterior motive. And so I, it's, I don't know that I believe it, but I do find it very, very interesting in a way that I usually don't. Yeah. So I, I did read just a little bit on, um, the evidence against their story. Oh, good, good. Um, there was uh, one person who did an in-depth uh, debunking of the whole thing and gave his uh, thoughts on what probably was happening and, and why the whole thing was a hoax. Um, and that there was a potential motive in that uh, Mike's government contract and Mike was falling behind on the contract. And so the, that investigator thought that um, they concocted this story as a way to get out of their government contract. Um, oh. In my mind, the most damning evidence was the fact that uh, Travis and his entire family were uh, UFO, they were um, uh, described by the sheriff's deputy as UFO enthusiasts. Um, oh. Yes, prior mm. to the whole he thing. He did, in one of the little YouTube clips I saw, he was. Um, being interviewed by a wrestler a wrestling podcast of all things but the guy they were standing outside of the actual phone booths that uh travis used when he was returned because he was returned huh. to this like random gas station or whatever and he was like and here's the very phone booth that i was you know i turned back in or whatever and the the host of the podcast says um well have you ever after this have did you experience any other you know what you would consider alien contact out of this you know did they return whatever and and travis says well i did have a couple things happen that i can't prove so i won't talk about them uh you know on the record which i thought was kind of interesting huh. yeah the other thing is that um his story uh happened two weeks after the movie i think it was called the ufo incident which was a made for tv movie about the Barney and Betty Hill UFO abduction, which was the, really the first uh, major um, in pop culture uh, alien abduction story. Um, Interesting. So that the timing was really suspicious. Huh. It's, wow. The part that I still can't get over, though, is the corroborating six or seven different stories all with the, all the polygraphs. Because that's, especially over the course of 20 years, other people aren't going to want to like just bolster Travis's story if they're sick of being accosted by it. You know, like if you're, if you're tired of people asking you questions about UFOs, you just say, yeah, we made it all up. 
I don't know I what say, to say. I say declaratively. It's, it kind of sounds like, do you remember, this is a, I don't know if it's a deep cut. Do you remember Balloon Boy? Oh, the, oh the, yeah. The story of the Heenies, I believe their last name was, who was built that the... 2011? 2010, I, yeah. I don't remember when it happened, but, you know, after after his kids supposedly got swept up in this balloon that the whole world stopped. What a time to be alive that was when the whole world was watching this balloon over Nevada or wherever that was. But then it kind of come, comes out that he was, you know, trying to get on reality TV, trying to do, like had a history of. And that's kind of what maybe Travis uh, Travis Walton reminds me of if he was the precursor to Heaney's The Balloon Boy. <laughs> Uh, drama, but yeah, I think that's entirely possible. Um, again, uh, at that time, in the uh, right after the premiere of that UFO incident movie, um, the public was hungry, I think, for more abduction stories, and it just took someone to step forward, and they would have gotten all of the attention. And uh, whether or not it was his intent, uh, he was at the right place at the right time to become that new alien abduction poster child. Okay, I'm looking up the book uh, Communion, uh, thinking, well, maybe that was around at the same time. So the book was written in 1987 for Communion. So that was pretty far, far along after this story uh, supposedly happened. So I guess that didn't that didn't overlap quite like I thought. But um, wow. So oh, the other thing I like. So after D.B. Sweeney gets returned, you know, they find him at this abandoned looking gas station. He's naked and like he's kind of feral and needs water and he's freaking out and so his friends show up and tagging along the ufologist or whoever those characters were supposed to be from so afar. he's clearly <laughs> gone through <laughs> he's clearly gone through db sweeney has gone through this trauma of some sort like he's you know acting like a mad person and so they throw a giant party with him with hundreds of people who show up at his house <laughs> and i'm like you got i mean maybe they didn't know a lot about ptsd back in 1975 <laughs> and i'm like you don't want to throw a giant party for someone who's like freaking out about something <laughs> that just happened to them because yeah he ends up underneath the kit the dining room table hiding from everyone <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, anything else about what What do you think the legacy – does this movie have a legacy? Honestly, not as big as it deserves, I feel. Um, I think so, too, just from the design standpoint, I think. But again, I mean, this did look a lot like The Matrix, and I do feel like I've seen kind of that image of someone's face shrink-wrapped. and uh, it, it, Yeah, it was – I'm still I'm irritated now retrospectively that this is the first time I've ever seen that imagery. <laughs> I hold everyone that I've ever known my entire life accountable for not showing me that imagery. Uh, I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, and um, uh, Oakland, Oregon, uh, it doesn't get a lot of mentions. It's it's a tiny little town. We've actually been in that store that uh, where the cafe. Uh, Nick and I travel little yeah. know, through little towns this is not too far from sutherland and you know brownsville kind of area it's about uh 150 miles from portland so you can do it as a day trip it's a day trip and, and it's our late uh, summer day trip late summer day trip uh and so um i i like those little towns of oregon and you know little antiquing places and everything so so if you're looking to do some location scouting and uh get some antiquing in 
at the same time, uh, this is a good movie to, to track down. Yeah, and I'll have pictures of, of, of where the locations were at uh, portlandofthemovies.com slash map, so you can check that out and, and look south on I-5, and then you'll find Ashland and Oakland. Um, well, anything else about this movie? Anything um, we didn't cover? I, I uh, wholeheartedly recommend it to, to uh, anyone. Um, it's yeah. it's good on the uh, watching it. It has very much the vibe of uh, something like Stand by Me in terms of small town uh, Oregon, um, and it really does feel like an Oregon road trip. Um, and there you it, It's got the incredible creature design, uh, special effects by ILM, um, and it's got a pretty good uh, alien abduction story. Uh, whether or not you choose to believe it, it's it's a compelling watch. Yeah, I would say that it, if you treat it like an extended episode of the X-Files, I think you'll be happier because yeah. then you'll like kind of expect less from it as a whole. But I mean, yeah, even just looking again at that imagery of, of, of that abduction scene is just, just amazing. So another thing that, that uh, Travis Walton continues to say in his interviews is that no matter when the interview was that he's trying to get Hollywood to remake it so that it's more accurate to his actual story but so far, there has not been a lot of interest. So, <laughs> well, uh, did you actually read his um, description of the the abduction firsthand? I I heard him talk about it a little bit and how now he thinks that it wasn't so much an abduction as a rescue mission because the aliens saw that they had knocked him out with the light and that his friends sped away and the aliens felt bad because it was kind of unintentional and that they took him aboard the ship to revive him. So that is kind of his uh, part of his account, huh. his official stance. Well, it, it sounds really, uh, like, I. it sounds almost less believable, um, his actual telling of it. Uh, he talks about how he was led down this corridor into a hangar where there were multiple UFOs, and that uh, not only were there aliens, but there were also humans that wouldn't speak, and they were wearing some weird helmets. Um, and it, it just sounds. I did, I yeah. did see him talk about it. And I think they showed uh, some illustrations. What I, where I think were from, must have been from the book. And you know, there's a very, very, there's a couple very unique art styles when you see them. You're like, oh, that's that thing, like a courtroom sketch. Like you'll never mistake a courtroom <laughs> sketch for being anything other than a courtroom sketch. So what you're saying style... these were alien abduction sketches? No, no, no. <laughs> no, the art style that I was watching in this little thing where Travis was talking about uh, these humanoid creatures that appeared to him at the very be at the very end of his uh, before he got returned. There's an art style used by Jehovah's Witnesses <laughs> in the Watchtower. Uh, any sort of Watchtower magazine is like this illustration. <laughs> It's it's so distinct. Like if you Google, if you Google that, you will see it, and it is so specific. And that's what the illustrations they were showing looked like. It was like this woman and man in like this weird blue robe as he was describing them, and how they looked at him and put an oxygen <laughs> mask over his face, and then he was returned to Earth or whatever. So that's what the illustrations of the book reminded me. Oh, of. Funny, I'm, yeah, I'm looking now. <laughs> Isn't that super specific to uh -huh. like religious <laughs> religious tract <laughs> illustrations? I, I know exactly what you're talking about. Uh, well, awesome. Yeah, I also recommend this movie. Even I guess if you kind of have all the spoilers of of this podcast, uh, it was amazing to go in not knowing it, and I had a 
had a really it was it what my, it reinvigorated me i guess again for the, for the podcast to know that there are some little hidden gems out there that that we kind of forget about uh and we can we can add to our list with pride so that was great um i do want to say thank you to our patrons uh at patreon.com slash portland at the movies for hanging in there through all of this uh we appreciate you guys and it's surprising i think we've been doing this podcast for four four and a half years and i don't think we've ever missed a month wow. so that's that's kind of impressive um so it's been really fun you can hear us on the fun employment radio network uh check them out brian does the unipiper and his new uh luxurious locks of hair <laughs> that you've been growing through covid are there any plans for you coming up yes i am excited to a uh, world exclusive announcement right here wow um, barrel, 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 barrel. <laughs> this coming friday um come and uh see the unipiper in action I will be at the Crypto Zoo, uh, which is oh cool, which is the latest project from a uh, Portland artist Mike Bennett, um, who is going through uh, and doing uh, a, a giant uh, art cutout of every animal, uh, a cryptozoological animal for every letter of the alphabet, um, and that's in front of his place. Uh, just Google it, the Crypto Zoo. You'll find it, and I'll be out there uh, Friday evening um, and uh, celebrating the the Halloween season. That is awesome. Has Mike ever done a cutout of you? Um, no, he hasn't. Uh, we have plans to do that one day. Um, I was gonna say well, I should commission one for just for Portland at the movies and then just <laughs> use it around town or whatever. But yeah, Mike, if you go check out Mike Bennett Art, I think is what he is on on Instagram. But he does this really cool. He finds old pieces of plywood or pieces of wood that have been thrown out, and he he cuts them out and does like a two uh, a two dimensional cartoon illustration I, like i'm doing a terrible job describing it but there's so there's so wonderful and magical and and happy and last he had done an a to z zoo uh in front of his house with giant cutouts of real animals and now he's doing cryptozoology which he started so that's awesome that you're gonna be part of that so um yeah check definitely check mike bennett mike bennett uh out for that uh mark what about you well, Todd, uh, you and I have our uh, mostly weekly podcast called... Uh, <laughs> and some, we some haven't missed a, a week ever since... So. <laughs> In a week. <laughs> I guess, did we miss last week? I don't know. Uh, yeah, and so um, the Mark and Todd cast, uh, you can find us uh, at markandtoddcast.com. And we are also on the Fun Employment Radio Network. And um, and so we talk about things that go on in Portland and some science stuff. We should we should we should we, the Mark and Todd cast should have Travis Walton on. We can attack him from a scientific angle. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, check out. Thanks everyone for listening. Um, we will see you guys next month. Indeed. Bye. Take care.